Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Judge Jules, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 50th episode of the House Culture Podcast, hosted as ever by me, Matt Rouse, the Managing Editor at House Culture. I'd like to say a big thank you to you, the listener, who's chosen to press play on this podcast and invite us into your headphones today. It's truly an honour to be speaking directly to you, and I hope you've managed to listen to many more of our episodes. To all you new listeners, welcome to House Culture. We are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is where the main room is, so if you haven't already, come and join us and over 100,000 party people from across the world. Also, if it is your first time here, where have you been? This is our 50th episode, so you've got an excellent journey of discovery ahead of you as you dig through our back catalogue of episodes that feature such dance music luminaries as Paul Oakenfold, Roger Sanchez, Fatboy Slim, David Morales and Danny Tanaglia. We've also spoken to many others from in and around club culture, so even if you don't recognise their name, I guarantee you they have a fascinating tale to tell. In this episode... I sat down with someone who is somewhat of a superhero. By day he is an entertainment lawyer and by night he is a superstar DJ that has been playing out and putting on parties since the early days of house music. He is the one that doesn't budge. It is of course Judge Jules. In our chat you'll hear what he learned when he first started spinning records in clubs. You learn so many things about energetic dancing sort of music when you play your first gig. You know people it's not just people's reaction. It's the sort of spiritual tribal thing about the reaction, but it's also how different records sound on a big sound system. His advice on how to make an impact in the music business. 
I got into putting on sort of illegal parties when I was about 18 and I did that for, for probably for about five years. Creating a brand for yourself because nobody else is going to give it to you. I think it's a tremendously important lesson within the music business. But putting on illegal parties is very stressful as well. The behind the scenes stories from one of his most iconic residencies. Gatecrasher was the venue it was best remembered for was one of the best designed clubs I've ever performed in where you can see everybody from the DJ booth. And the effect that his career in music has had on his life. The greatest gift I've been given and I, and I, is making a full-time career out of music because so few people get that privilege especially out of dance music, to have made a living and a decent living out of what is my enduring passion makes me one of the luckiest guys on earth. So, here we go. The judge, he won't budge. Always wanted to say that. This is Judge Jules. House Culture. Hi, Jules. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to sit down with us on the House Culture podcast today. You've been a major player in our scene for a huge amount of time, playing to massive crowds, running events, hosting radio shows, signing and releasing anthems, and all the while managing to hold down a career in law. However, we always want to start at the beginning and understand how you got to where you are today. Can you tell us where you grew up and how you first discovered music? Uh, I grew up in Crouch End in North London. I, I, my my parents bought me records, really, and they were probably like ABBA records, I would imagine, at that sort of age. Um, anybody who pretends to have immediately got into the more credible side of things is a liar. And I, I don't <laughs> intend to lie. I think there's nothing, no shame in it. Uh, yeah, that, that was my upbringing, really. No way. So what, was music always on in the house and your parents were just kind of like playing a lot of music and into that kind of scene? Uh, actually, my dad only likes classical music. My oh. mum really likes sort of pop pop music. Uh, but I've got lots of family members um, who are big time into music are a bit older than me. And I think having an older, not necessarily a sibling, but an older sort of cousin, in, which I had in my case, was was helpful as a, as a, ultimately you need to get onto the playing field, don't you? And that got me onto the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. And so what were you looking for when you when you started buying music yourself? What kind of stuff were you interested in picking up? I, I just I, I think whatever touches your heart, really. I don't think there was any I, as you, in your formative years, you just um, you like what you like. I don't think you necessarily sort of intellectualize the reasons for liking it. Um, I think in in latter years, as I, I was in the business of music and as it became a career, mm-hmm. um, one looks into one's own soul and tries to analyze a bit more about what it is that one likes about particular tunes and what makes one uh go down a particular genre path but you know back then it was just you like what you like really (laughs) just whatever's on the radio just the pop music really um so i mean how did you first like hear about or witness a dj or anything like that what were kind of those formative clubbing experiences like for you there weren't really that many djs that um were my influences i think it was more a case of being um the kids on the block who had the biggest record collection i was really super passionate about it It was you know on on what would then be what now be called speed dial with the people in the record my nearest record shop in crouch end in north london um and that sort of started from a quite a young age from probably when i was about 10 Mm -hmm. and then when you get to sort of your late teens being a bit of a geek um and just being a sort of anoraki record collector starts to be a bit of an embarrassment. And that <laughs> is at that point, you've almost got to kind of 
do something with it to justify being a geek because let's face it most djs are geeks deep down mm-hmm. i mean i think you know you can you can dress you can dress us up how you like in sort of non-geeky clothes but but fundamentally if you're not a geek about music you're in the wrong place really yeah totally i mean yeah you do have to have that kind of like nerd type passion like understanding the connections between record labels and producers and artists and all those kind of things and connect those dots to be able to bring put together your record collection that you you enjoy absolutely and and when i was from very young I started going to secondhand record shops as well and sort of picking mm-hmm. up on areas of music that I didn't necessarily like first time round. especially when I was sort of, when I started DJing, um, I, I grew up really disliking kind of disco and, and and quite a lot of black music I just didn't like. And it was only as when I started going out to the odd club and started DJing that it just completely changed my my opinion because obviously you see it is in a moment of epiphany when you when you either first DJ with, um, certain styles of music or indeed when you go out and you you have your first clubbing experiences mm-hmm. and that that's that epiphany is very very important I think for for all DJs yeah yeah and so what were those what were those early gigs like for you when you were out there playing music and, and presenting music to a, to a crowd and, and getting that connection well I mean I started life as a promoter that was um, I mean really if you want to get your foot in the door um, that's one of the best ways to do it, especially when you're really young. You know, I was 16 at the time. Um, when you're 16, you don't know it. You're not aware of it at the time. But of course, that's probably when you've got your biggest social circle. And as you grow older, your social circle diminishes to the point at which, you know, when you're the age I am now, it's pretty damn <laughs> embarrassingly small. Um, but at the time, when you're 16, you know just loads and loads and loads of people. Mm-hmm. And 16-year-olds don't have a great deal to do. And there weren't there aren't many venues that will turn bat a bit of a blind eye to uh the fact that everybody's 16. And I got into promoting me and a me and one of my my school friends, who's actually a producer in his own right, called Rollo, who 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 is the guy behind Faithless yeah, and uh, yeah. brother of Dido. Mm-hmm. Uh and we we started putting on events. And I then did events with very few other sets of people but it was really those events when i was 16 um the first opportunity to actually play records to people that was that i keep using the word epiphany but there's no better word way to describe it really where you 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 learn so many things about music or sort of energetic dancey sort of music when you play your first gigs you know people it's not just people's reaction it's the it's the sort of spiritual tribal thing about the reaction but it's also how different records sound on a big sound system yeah that's always been quite remarkable and i've got better over the years at listening to promos on my headphones um because obviously i have to listen to masses of promos every week mm-hmm. and working out what's going to sound good in a club but actually it's a it, it, it's not a given that something that sounds great when you listen to it at home uh, sounds quite so good in in a club environment because the space the spaces between the parts are so much more amplified in a uh, in a club or a sort of you know sound system environment meaning that things that records that are too busy um actually sound that way when when they're on a big sound system and might not necessarily sound that way when listened to on headphones or on a smaller set of speakers yeah yeah completely agree and you know so those early promoter parties that you're putting on you know is that connection to where your name came from like were these legal parties what's the what's where did this all come about the very first ones i did weren't were Mm. legal albeit they were sort of under 18s in a in a very much over 18 venues but Mm. um no, I got into I got into putting on sort of illegal parties when I was 
when I was about 18 and I did that for, for probably for about five years mm-hmm. until until the, the point at which I was being booked by third party sort of promoters. I mean, it's on the one hand, leaving entrepreneurialism behind for a while and no longer being a promoter was a bit sad because it's you create your own brand and there were, especially Norman Jay and I and and for, for a short period of time, Soul to Soul and I, mm-hmm. when we were putting things on, you know, we were a very tight unit and being that being sort of entrepreneurs and creating, um, creating a brand for yourself, a marketplace for yourself, because nobody else is going to give it to you. I think it's a tremendously important lesson in business life within the music business, Mm -hmm. but putting on illegal parties is very stressful as well. Um, (laughs) It was, it should be pointed out. You might think, how are somebody who's now a a lawyer, uh, freely admitting to putting on illegal party but at the time they were the laws against them were much more gray they were much more of a gray area it wasn't until the early uh, the sort of mid 90s that they made they really reinforced the laws against them by which point i i was long gone as being an illegal rave promoter <laughs> i mean back then you know what was the vibe was it like was there an element of danger to it or like you say just just the, st- the stress added to the, the danger added to the stress yeah, I mean, there, was, there, was, there was quite a bit of danger i mean there was you know, they're very un unpoliced. Mm. Um and the the down you know, the downside of being on the dark side, I'm trying to sound like I'm creating poetry here, um, <laughs> is that you are, you know, if something goes wrong, you can't call upon the authorities to bail you out. Yeah. And a couple of times things went wrong. And by wrong, I mean the wrong, you know, the wrong elements getting into the gigs. Mm. Uh I don't mean anything more sort of tragic than that. Um yeah. but it was when you're young, you're also quite fearless when you're young. I mean, the reason I got the name judge is because I had to front up the police mm-hmm. and tell them it was a party for me and my law student chums, quote unquote. <laughs> uh, and and I didn't give myself the name judge. I, I think like all good nicknames, it came, it sort of evolved through my my, my sort of mates and the people I was putting the events on mm. with uh, calling me that eventually <laughs> due to that role. And again, I was kind of 18 to 20 years old. Mm. You're, you're, you're kind of fear, well, fearless and stupid in equal measures to be kind of the person who's at the, at the front door when the, when the, uh, when the blue lights come turning up. <laughs> and yeah, fronting up to the police as well. Like, you know, you were a young guy talking about this huge party happening right behind you and just kind of saying, oh, you know, it's, it's all right. It's all for me and my mates. You know, how how credible was that persona to the to the police? Did they just take it out of hand straight away? Or, or... Well, I don't know. As I say, it, at that time, which was in the sort of late 80s, mm. the, the law against illegal parties was significantly less robust. So uh, I think... And also there was less kind of furore around acid house raves, which came immediately afterwards. Mm -hmm. So that as long as you weren't sort of disturbing people, as long as they weren't going to wake up, uh, you know, Monday morning, there wasn't going to be a sea of complaints on the chief's chief superintendent's desk about this party that had taken place. All they wanted to do actually was probably be reassured a, you know, in the middle of the night on a Saturday night, the police are probably fairly short staffed and B they wanted to know that it was a kind of safe sort of middle-class kids (laughs) event. And, Actually, they weren't that at all. It's just I was a middle class kid who was kind of uh, speaking to them. <laughs> yeah, and you, you mentioned like Acid House though, and this being in that kind of pre-era to that. Like, what kind of music was being played at these events, and and how did Acid House kind of influence you as a promoter, DJ, and kind of moving on? Well, it was it was part house. It was at the beginning of the house era. Obviously, house, 
um, unbeknown to some house did actually start at the, there is a start point for house before which it didn't exist and that start point was probably in about 1985 mm-hmm. and these parties were taking place in the late 80s so there, there weren't that there weren't really enough house records for it to be an entire dose of house it was a bit of old school hip-hop a bit of rare groove and a bit of house really mm-hmm Cool. And um, how did you get discovered by KISS? Uh, you know, it's a, the illegal pirate station in London um, set up by Gordon Mack, who we've also spoken to on this podcast. And he kind of gave us all the background about it all being set up and everything. How did you get into that orbit and start playing for that station? I was well, one of the my longest standing DJ cohort in promoting illegal events was Norman Jay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norman Jay was... Uh, a very significant player, a very significant DJ on Kiss FM, the Pirates, mm-hmm. um, had a very key show, was extremely influential in terms of the musical output as well. And I, you know, I feel like I was his little brother, really, you know, <laughs> metaphorically, but, you know, he, he really took me under his wing and he got me on Kiss, the Pirate Station, it, which was only on at weekends. Some of the Pirates at the time uh, were tried to broadcast at 24-7, but it was just it wasn't practicable because you just got taken down so often. Whereas if you just wanted to broadcast at a weekend, the chance of being kind of having your equipment taken away from the tower block roof that you were broadcasting from were much more slender. And therefore, um, uh, but they launched on an additional day. They launched on a Friday, whereas they'd been on a Saturday and a Sunday before, uh, which necessitate bringing on a bunch of DJs who were doing stuff in the in the club land at the time. And I was lucky enough to be one of those. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned like a, a tower block or whatever. You know, what did it involve to, to, to actually the logistics of like DJing on a legal station? Were you having to, you know, hide records as you're walking into places, into the tower block and how you're getting up to the studio and stuff like just take us through the behind the scenes of getting involved yeah well i mean i was never i was never involved in the infrastructure of actually running the station but Mm. but all i really knew was that on tower block a there was a transmitter Mm. and tower block b which could actually be quite a long distance away from tower block a uh was the studio and there was some sort of kind of radio wave link between the two so uh in theory they would never find that the station the, the the studio they certainly didn't during my tenure mm-hmm. there um and yes you had to be a bit cloak and dagger well a have your wits about you because they were never in the nicest areas <laughs> that's for sure where the where the studios were um but also not make it very obvious what was going on mm-hmm. and you know how did that um kind of give you the launch pad for your for your dj career like during that that period like how did that push you forward well i think i think it was a combination of factors i mean kiss the then pirate station was very credible it's it was the only pirate station i mean if you if you listen to pirates now i love listening to pirate radio um Mm -hmm. but they do tend to be in a very narrow range of genres in london anyway in london they're either house or drum and bass or reggae, just about every pirate station. Whereas Kiss, the then pirate, was very broad in its musical output Mm -hmm. and was more about reflecting what was going on in the burgeoning club scene of London, which was a very, very strong and creative place. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a huge calling card. But I also started, I was lucky enough to get a residency in uh, the late 80s at one of the key acid house clubs by which point i was only playing house because there was enough house to play mm-hmm. uh which is called club mfi which was at legends in old burlington street that lasted for three or four years mm-hmm. so having a uh, and that got me booked for a lot of the the, the so-called sort of orbital m25 based 
acid house parties. So it was kind of a combination of both of those things, really. The, um, if you like, the shop window for somebody who's got a personality, because one of the great things about radio, if you're capable of doing it, is that you are showing a different dimension to yourself. You should, you're, you're nice or nasty. You're demonstrating who you are yeah. beyond just playing music. And um, and then I had this incredibly significant DJ residency, which which really opens a lot of doors. And I, I was I was lucky. I was doing one of my own events, uh, and the promoter, one of London's leading promoters, I just happened to play his five favorite records in a row, <laughs> and bang, I was booked. And and. It was just one of those really lucky moments. I think I think that everybody who succeeds in any sphere of the arts needs a bit of luck, and that mm. was certainly one of those key moments. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you know, you mentioned the the kind of orbital M twenty five kind of. You know, was it purely like a London scene at that stage? Was it creeping out into the UK? Were you getting booked much outside of the capital? I think in the late eighties, when I was doing the Acid House raves, it, for me it was a London scene. There was a there was a kind of parallel scene going on in the northwest. Um, in in Blackburn, in uh, yeah, uh, largely because I was told about it by you know subsequently told about it by DJ friends from that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as I was concerned, I didn't really. So Kiss FM got legal got legalised in 1990, and it broadcast, although notionally a London station, it broadcasting to quite a wide radius, probably almost down to the south coast in the south, far out as sort of Swindon in the west. Um, and sort of Oxford stroke, Milton Keynes. So it's quite a big catchment area. Mm-hmm. And that alone got me booked for a lot of clubs, if you like, in a, around the radius of London as well, clubs and events. Yeah. And it was almost like, I don't know if the, the same story applies to other DJs, but in my case, it was a case of kind of concentric rings. You know, you you get big in Swindon and then somebody in Bristol hears you. Um, and for me, the Southwest was always quite strong. I mean, I don't know whether it's because my, my my uncle's Rick Stein and, and my... Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always had a strong connection with Cornwall no and my brother, my brother worked there. So I really pushed that I really wanted to be in Cornwall, Devon, Bristol, mm-hmm. because that's kind of where a lot of my family are. And I'm from London, but that's where a lot of my other family members come from. So you want to kind of go where your family is. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of grew in sort of these concentric rings to the point at which eventually it was kind of all of the UK. And when it, um, you, you start, you know, you add into the equation making records as well. And I think it's when it when it got to be all of the UK, which is like the kind of the mid nineties, mm-hmm. um, and I was you know pulling good numbers pretty much everywhere. That's obviously when Radio One starts to be interested because you need to be a um, you need to be somebody who's got national resonance and yeah. not just somebody's a sort of London thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's going to be my next question in terms of getting that call. Was it in ninety seven from Radio One that you Correct, started? Yeah. yeah. And you know, what was it like getting that call? Um, and how did you feel about moving from Kiss to the BBC? What was the the dynamic there for you? I mean, I would be lying if I said that being on Radio One had been a lifelong ambition because when I was younger, so by the time I got that call, I was already um, about thirty. Um, which is actually older, the, the sort of average median age on Radio One with its presenters has gone down a bit. But that's when I, how old I was when I joined Radio One. Mm-hmm. But in my in my late teens and early twenties, Radio One just wasn't on the radar. Pardon the pun, um, because it wasn't. It didn't really have. It had sort of one weekly dance music show, and it wasn't really playing. And that one show wasn't really reflective of where I was coming from at all. So it was only when they started recruiting more scenesters from who are closer to where I was from, like Danny Rampling, for example, mm-hmm. um, that it became a realistic and, a, 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 well, a sensible ambition, something that actually 
I felt there was there was synergy between it and me and and by that point by 97 it was very much the case and it was a by by that point I was really really you know super chuffed because I've got a huge respect for Radio 1 it's it's unique in its position probably in the world in terms of making uh, treating the breaking of new music as being a sort of a a positive and not a liability yeah. whereas so many so much of radio unfortunately is very safe yeah you're so right yeah and you know that show that you had when you first joined it was pitched as the the notice board for the deranged generation um you know i mean what kind of sounds and what plan did you when you arrived there want to like bring to the station i don't think i had any particular blueprint i've, I've always been a bit genre agnostic i've you know to an extent i've been associated with trance quite heavily but i've always loved house and obviously i was very big at the, when when house came along in in the in the acid house rave so i didn't really i just like what i like really and i um just wanted to play the records i love and lucky i've been lucky enough then and i'm still lucky enough now to do a lot of gigs and obviously you just play what is reflected in your gigs really mm-hmm. and you know you were there for a good many years i mean what were your kind of high points um during your time there i mean obviously there were some huge festivals there was always the live broadcasts essential mixes um the ibiza um residentials you know what was your what's your abiding memory when you look back on that era well i guess um, i guess the high points would be all of those live things i've always sort of considered myself i don't know more my, my my dna is as a club and festival dj and yet yes i can speak and radio is something i do and it's something i always have done and i've done for you know more than 30 years now but but i'm all but i'm 51 percent you know a a performer out you know club and radio club and festival dj and only 49 percent a radio dj so the minute you put me out in front of the crowd doing live broadcast that's the absolute that that combines all the elements you possibly want the the, the huge audience potential of radio, but just the whites of their eyes element of of playing to a crowd. Yeah, that completely different dynamic, I suppose. If you if you're in a studio and it's often dark underground, there's maybe you and three other people to be able to get that connection that you have in a live environment is you know so much more performative. Absolutely. I mean, the the, the great thing about radio is the ability to break records, and um, it was always a it really important to me to take certain records and play them like four or six weeks in a row, Mm -hmm. which some other radio DJs in the dance music fraternity don't do. They're all about just, I'll only play brand new stuff. But I think you, in my philosophy, it was better to actually break records and be, break certain records that you really believed in. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I mean, I was listening to Radio 1 to your show during that era and then I would go out and see you at a gig and it was refreshing to hear you play the tracks that you'd been playing on the radio in your sets as well. And that reflection of the two was in line. Sometimes you would hear a a DJ on the radio and you'd go and see them play live and they wouldn't necessarily play stuff that you'd really recognise from the sound of their show. Yeah, and I, I mean that. Yeah, that was my philosophy, and it's it, you know it seems to work, and it you know broke a lot of records. I was on Radio One for fifteen years, and there's a number of records that you know have gone on to be very big dance records. Some of which I signed in A and R capacity. I mean, we don't need to touch upon A and R too much because, uh, but around that time, mm-hmm. probably within the first after about five years of being on Radio One, I stopped doing the A and R thing for a while and focused more on making records as opposed to sort of signing records to other people, because obviously as a radio 1%, you can kind of break things a different way. Um, but that, that breaking records is a, 
something that I think is so important. I think I think it's a really important DJ DJ shouldn't forget, especially in the current environment where you've got this crazy number of Spotify releases every day, mm. how difficult it is for uh, any new artist to put their head above the parapet because it's just the conveyor belt moves, the conveyor belt of kind of taste and new releases moves so much more quickly now. So it's really important to stick your neck out and champion things you believe in. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, trust in the tastemakers as well, those DJs who you have an affinity with, who you can know that are going to deliver you the goods rather than be just being overwhelmed with all of the all of the releases that are out there, the scale of music that you can get hold of and have access to is, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, can be quite scary. Um, I mean, and obviously during this era when you're on Radio 1 as well, you're holding down um, your residency at the iconic um, Sheffield Club Gatecrasher. Um, you know, I certainly went many times, experienced the whole energy of that place. I mean, can you tell us about that club, the music you played there, and what kind of characters would frequent the place? I, th- I think that I think the Gatecrasher. I mean, the, the the three the three clubs that I I have the I, I feel had the biggest contributing factor to my career mm. uh, would be MF Club MFI, the thing I described in the Acid House era, mm-hmm. Judgment Sundays in Ibiza, mm-hmm. and and Gatecrasher, and Gatecrasher was. Um, I don't know, the venue, it, it went through a couple of venues, but the venue it was best remembered for is one of, was one of the best designed clubs mm-hmm. I've ever performed in, where almost, you can see, despite being a pretty vast club, you can see everybody from the DJ booth. It was on a kind of tiered level. It had its own sound. It had a, a crowd that was incredibly loyal. It had, the, you know, the, the, the so-called sort of crasher kid thing sort of emerged, that, that kind of what in America got, termed rather tackily candy ravers but in (laughs) it was called crasher kids in the uk Mm. and um on the one hand i was a little bit hesitant about that aspect of it because i just felt i I think individuality is what you know music and great and loving new music go hand in hand but at the same time it was an incredibly unique experience yeah yeah and it would like you say there was that that whole kind of family of those crasher kids that would go to all different types of lengths and get all, all dressed up and it, it became it wasn't there a period where you know there was almost like the backlash against that and there was something to, to try and like you say to introduce more individualism into the club yes although i said that and, and some people didn't like it some people <laughs> yeah. difficult isn't it because you know on the one hand you are um you're a leading DJ and you're you're a tastemaker in terms of music, but mm. preaching to other people how they should should dress will go down very badly with certain people. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. And you know, I mean, it was, like you said, from that DJ booth and the way the the place was designed, um, you know, you could see a lot. You could see everything. You know, what um, what stands out for you as like a great gig there, or you know, being in the booth and witnessing something. You know, when you think about that that those days well i think i think everybody everybody in the club singing happy birthday to me um <laughs> one night when we stopped the music and they were doing it and and i've never i'm not since i've it's really probably since turning 21 i've not been a big birthday celebrator um because i just think you know you're not peter pan in in dj land the older you get the more you're uh you're sort of out of kilter with the tip with the median age of your of your peers so I, I certainly hadn't told anybody it was my birthday, but the whole club actually simultaneously burst into song, which was which was nice. No way, that's incredible. <laughs> it must have been a heartwarming moment. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah, particularly particularly poignant times, really. 
And, you know, during that time as well, um, just a little bit further on, there's there was obviously the your involvement with the Kevin and Perry Go Large movie. Um, you know, you co-wrote some of the tracks that were featured in that in that film. Um, and obviously it was filmed predominantly on Ibiza. You mentioned Judgment Sundays in Ibiza as well. Like, can you tell us about the background of setting that up and, you know, why it was so successful and the kind of music you were playing there? Yeah, well, starting with Kevin. Kevin and Perry was actually filmed in 99 and it was released in 2000s. And Judgment started in 2000 and probably probably went continued weekly till about 2015. Um, I, I just, um, I mean, Kevin and Perry, there's not much to say about really other than um, it, it's almost like it, its legacy now has been, is the most remarkable thing. And the fact that there haven't been There've been lots of films about clubbing culture and lots of films about dance music, but actually not many of them have been very good. That you probably, I would say, it's all gone Pete Tong, Human Traffic, and Kevin Perry are the only good ones that mm-hmm. I could name. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite there being having been, I mean, almost hundreds. Mm. Um, but Kevin and Perry's the way it transcends generations. You know, I've got my two kids have got into Kevin and Perry without even knowing that I had anything to do with it and sort of came to me saying wow have you seen this film about Ibiza mm-hmm. um yeah I don't know how much more one can say about that because it's it's silly yet it reflects it, the club scenes in Kevin and Perry mm-hmm. are almost the best and most accurate club scene nightclub scenes of any of those movies let alone all the rest and in terms of setting up Judgment Sunday I just I'd been I'd been playing uh, for a lot of other pro, I've been going to Ibiza every week to DJ for a long time throughout the nineties, but kind of doing various things on rotation, doing cream, doing many mission, doing uh, Miss Money Pennies, doing things at Pasha, mm-hmm. and I just and, and Eden came along as as this venue that had basically reinvented itself from a previous incarnation under a different name, mm-hmm. new owners, people that I knew very well, and they invited me to take a chance on it, and I so I sort of stepped back into promoting. For the first time, it had basically been the best part of 20 years or sort of 18 years since I promoted something before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did, and but it worked amazingly well because, because, I, because I'd never been snooty about San Antonio and some, there's an awful lot of inverted snobbery about San Antonio amongst the Ibiza faithful because the reality is without San Antonio, Ibiza probably wouldn't prosper because it's the, it's people's first taste of, uh, the island, yeah. um, and it was it was it was hugely successful. I mean, but we 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 tried to make it fun. We had a lot of elements, a, a lot of fun elements, kind of stilt walkers, kind of uh, well, people dressed as clowns, which actually frightened a lot of. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was all about it was it was it was supposed to be fifty percent fun and fifty percent about music. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, during that time, there obviously you said it was fifteen years. Like, how did Ibiza change during that era, like for the positive or for the negative? Well, Ibiza became a much, uh, has become a much less, uh, you know, the, the, the notion of the, of the pool party of daytime clubbing didn't exist when we started. And that's probably the most significant change and kind of VIP culture. Yeah. Um, and it would be very easy for me to sort of prattle on about not liking VIP culture um, because I feel it, it tends to detract from the music, which is why people should be there. But it is what it is. What's the point in me being negative? It just, it is what it is. I think Armin van Helden made this great record uh, about six months ago called The Promoter. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which really sums I, I couldn't sum up my feelings about VIP and bottle service better, which is uh, I, I would in, rather than me talking about it, go away and listen to Armin. Armin van Helden's the promoter. Listen to the lyrics. That's how I feel about VIP culture. <laughs> Fine, I'll definitely check it out. Um, and, you know, in terms of being that promoter and seeing like the DJ side of the coin as well, you know, um, having stepped away from promotion and then come back into promotion for things like Judgment Sundays, like what gives you the most kind of pleasure? Is it, you know, is it a different form of uh, happiness that you draw from each of one or is there, you know, I think, you know, you would like 51% promoter, 49% DJs. Is that the, is that the pleasure principle? Yeah. I mean, I was promoting, I was promoting it with, with a couple of sort of business partners who were, um, doing a lot of the spade work, so I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to go kind of basking myself in glory. They they work really hard. You know what? Both of whom were based in Ibiza, mm-hmm. who who lived there, who knew. Because I I don't. You, I think the worst thing is to be somebody who just goes in, kind of, barks orders, collects some money, and sort of disappears <laughs> back into the night. You know, mm. I speak fluent Spanish. I've got a house in Ibiza. I feel, um, very much part of Spanish culture, um, and I think. And I genuinely felt we were sort of being being part of the island rather than just coming in, take, take, taking. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what's your feelings on obviously like the VIP culture and things like that? Do you think things have changed kind of post-pandemic? Do you think there's going to be a backlash towards that? Or, you know, how do you see the island kind of manifesting itself in the next few years? Um, it's, I think we need to wait and see. Obviously, Ibiza was closed as a as a sort of clubbing destination for all of 2020 and pretty much all of 2021 so it's only had one season to come back um unfortunately i think the sort of hoisting your phone in the air and taking pictures and um and waiting for that you know i don't know the the waiter or waitress to come with that bottle of spirits overpriced bottle of spirits with a firework sticking out the top of it yeah. is probably here to stay i just you know for me i've just always been into for my sins, it's pro- it'd probably be better actually if I went into a club environment and just focused on my on a bottle of Grey Goose and not tried <laughs> to be the DJ sort of vicariously when I'm, you know, because it's really hard to... I was out at an event a couple of days ago. It was a record company event and mm. I just couldn't help myself but sort of judge every record the DJ was playing. Uh, <laughs> and actually the DJ, she was playing really good records. So it was all, it was all positive. But yeah. Um, you know, may- maybe I should focus more just on bottles and not what the DJ playing when I'm going out socially. <laughs> I mean, you know, as much as you've said as well about DJs being kind of nerdy and geeky, you have to have that element. You know, how much uh, competition did you find yourself in with other DJs kind of through your career? Is it is there a competitive element between yourselves or do you kind of... I think there's a, a tremendous, a tremendous degree of competitiveness when you're coming up. Mm. I think once you reach a certain pl- place and you're more comfortable within your own skin, you know you've got a really strong fan base, you know you've, you know, dare I say, it, you've sort of made your mark, then you can be, then you learn to understand that actually it's it's absolutely cool that there are other people around you doing similar. You're not, you know, you're not in a monopoly marketplace of, of one DJ. Mm. But I think that the DJs, I, I think it's got to be the same with with all creatives you know when you're less sure of yourself it's less certain that you're going to succeed in in your chosen sphere of the arts then you might have a habit of being a bit more bitchy and a bit more negative about others and and certainly feeling ultra competitive 
Yeah, I suppose you you know you have to look to some elsewhere to within your sphere of influence to kind of benchmark yourself against against other people to see how well you're doing. Yeah, I mean you, I mean there are there are actually there's not that many ways to benchmark yourself. You know, it's where you appear on flyers at, at clubs and festivals. It's um, what your fee, what fees you're earning, what your Spotify streaming streaming numbers are. Um, who you're managed by, you know, there's only a limited number of, of touch points to kind of assess whether you are, how you're performing compared to your peers, which I should stress, I haven't done for years because I'm quite comfortable in what I do. And I, um, the, the biggest shock for me is I'm still as busy as I am DJing now, sort of God knows how many years after I started. But I think, but I, but I certainly think as you're, as you, when you're younger and you're going through the earlier stages of your, of your career, you're looking at all those kind of those those metrics mm. to, to and hoping that you're sort of doing better in all of those than your peers yeah yeah and you know having done this for so long um and been a stalwart of the scene you know has that passion ever kind of waned for you have you ever had any moments where you're kind of like oh, I'm, I'm done with this i'm just going to hang up my headphones and and uh not play no, anymore is it never ever ever no i i really love DJing. i love playing for <laughs> crowds um it there've been a couple of there've been some periods of evolution where I haven't um where I've had to work out what I stand for as a DJ. And I think part of that is uh, now that my crowd, the people that I appeal to are sort of 35 plus, mm -hmm. I don't want to just go out and play classics, but I understand that I can't play no classics mm -hmm. because that would just so it's try so it took me a, quite a while to work out how to structure my DJ sets so as to not piss people off who might not go out as much as they did when they were 18 mm -hmm. and might want to hear some memories from the past. But at the same time, I don't want to be boring myself and just playing the same records, you yeah. know? So um, I think those were the only, that there've been a few kind of phases of evolution into a sort of modern, you know, the way I would, be, would play now, which is, is fairly sort of consistent again. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
him. Yeah, yeah. And like I suppose there's two kind of points that um, I could follow through on, on that. One's taste and one's kind of technology, I suppose. I mean, if you tackle taste first, like have you found yourself playing tracks that are considered kind of classics but you wouldn't necessarily have lent yourself towards like back then and over the years you've grown to love them and think think actually I'm gonna play this I, I love this track now it's like uh, it's always been there do you find yourself in those situations one, one or, yeah one or two but mainly mainly what I like you know of the historic stuff mm. what I like then I like now yeah there are a few sort of there are a few um I might play the odds ironic records that's really popular um that i would might consider cheesy then but as as long as you play it in the right context now Mm -hmm. um but no not that's that would be the exception (laughs) cool and you know and to say technology as well obviously you've seen it go from you know the purely vinyl analog days into you know the purely kind of digital age that we have these days Uh, what where do you stand on that vinyl versus digital debate you know what do you prefer obviously it's much easier to get to and from gigs and transport all your all your tunes and stuff you know what what other benefits and negatives are between the two for you well as soon as as soon as one was able to play digitally i, I ditched vinyl right away because mm-hmm. i've got i've had two operations on my shoulder <laughs> i've got a really bad back and i just found i like if you're into quick mixing mm-hmm. um actually working off working off digital files is much is a much more user-friendly way of operating um whereas vinyl you vinyl is you've got to go back to the beginning you can't find a point in it um so i so i embraced digital very early but i've never been a laptop dj Mm -hmm. um i play off pioneers like you know i use memory sticks and i mix it's just using it's using different hardware to, to achieve the same result i wouldn't I have no interest in doing using any form of sort of laptop based software that does the mixing for you. Yeah. That's, that's not, that's not me. I mean, I, each to their own really, but that's not me. Yeah, no, it's good to keep that element of things that are circular in front of you rather than a screen. I think, you know, and you can keep your eyes on the crowd and get that interaction. Yeah. I think, I think it's the eyes being on the crowd is the reason why I don't like, again i don't want to be critical because i've got lots of mates who use laptops but mm-hmm. it's not for me for me using a laptop it puts your eye line in the wrong direction and of course you still need to be looking down to choose your next track so it's not as if you're fully you know in a kind of uh, a game of kind of eye contact making eye contact with the crowd all the time but i just think i think with laptops it's a bit there's a bit less eye contact with the crowd yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I want to move on to um, your kind of career outside of, you know, DJing and promoting. I mean, you're kind of like, you know, a comic book superhero, you know, you're as by night, you're you're Judge Jules uh, behind the decks. But by day, you're, you're Jules O'Riordan, um, a music lawyer, you know, um, can you take us through kind of what it is you do in a professional capacity and how yeah, the two yeah, are kind I'm, of interlinked? I, I mean, I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that I, um, the reason I, the reason I became a lawyer, I've been doing it for 10 years. Obviously I've been a DJ for more than 30 years. I've been a lawyer for 10. It, and the reason I did it in the first place was because I didn't, I had no means of knowing what, what DJing would, what the future would hold for me as a DJ, because there were no, there were only a handful of DJs who are older than me, uh, to look at most, mm-hmm. most DJs are younger and most DJs careers have waned. Um, unbeknown to me, my career hasn't waned, thank God. But 
Um, so, so about 15 years ago, I was already thinking those thoughts. And I was thinking, you know, what can I do to stay in the game um, using the skills I've got? Because I'd already got a law degree. Mm-hmm. Unbeknown to me, I, I actually, my law degree was out of date by that point. So I had to redo <laughs> my law degree. Mm-hmm. Then I had to do professional qualifications. And then I had to go and do a training at a, a law, at a law firm for about five years mm-hmm. during the day. Um, fast forward to now, um, I'm a partner in a firm in somewhere called Talyard. Talyard is the biggest industrial estate of music business, music related businesses probably in the world, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, some really stellar names. And I'm a partner in one of in the only law firm that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, what does my practice entail? I mean, 70% of what I do is electronic music artists. I look after, you know, really some of the world, some very household name electronic artists. I don't like to sort of drop their names in because it's, it's sort of inappropriate to do so. Yeah, now I've got my lawyer hat, temporarily <laughs> got my lawyer hat on. Um, but it's it's basically fighting the good fight, really. It's negotiating contracts, getting them the best possible deals. You know, because I've done, I've had such a broad background in the music business. The only thing I'd, I'd never been really of any significance because I've been a manager, I've been a record company exec. Um, I'd never been a music publisher. So that was the one, it, although I've, I've got a music publishing deal. So that was the one thing that I had to learn about from non sort of coal face experience, but, you know, take that, add, add legal skills, um, be, you know, add, dare I say it, the skills of having been an illegal rape promoter and a bit of a hustler <laughs> because, mm-hmm. because being a, being a bit of a hustler is a very important attribute for being a music lawyer. I wouldn't necessarily say you have to be a hustler to be any, every type of lawyer, but definitely doing what I do, you do. Mm-hmm. And really fighting it hard because I, you can see you I've seen the best and worst in all in all circumstances um you know the the, the mantra of being a lawyer any form of commercial lawyer but certainly in the music industry is you know hope for the best but prepare for the worst and I'm all about preparing for the worst because I've experienced some of the worst mm. things and and the good you know the good news is that for every deal I do probably only um you know one in 30 one in 40 one in 50 even turns to acrimony and and angst but part of the reason it's a relatively low proportion is because i've you know i've done the right job in the first place um to protect um protect my clients so i really i mean i believe in it very wholeheartedly i get um the irony uh, and there's been a real synergy actually with djing if i mean if you if you put uh, on a business card, DJ and lawyer, people will think, hey, you're, you're a complete joker and you're on drugs <laughs> or something. Um, and actually the two don't appear to be very um, closely aligned. But of course, I'm, a, you know, what I do is music law. Mm-hmm. law and it's actually really benefited my, my DJ career, just, just making me, because suddenly it, psychologically, to be a successful artist, you, you, you met- metaphorically, you're constantly looking in the mirror and constantly focusing on yourself. Whereas as a lawyer, you've got this view from the mountaintop of about loads of people's careers. You get your your party to, you know, the trade, the deepest trade secrets, um, or so, you know, confidential considerations of countless different people. And it, a, I was able to sort of bring my own experience into that and help them. But actually, what I what I witnessed in other careers has really benefited mine. You know, I I. It, I not long after I became a lawyer, I changed my man- my long-standing manager, for example, because I just decided that he wasn't doing as good a job as um, some of the other managers that I was encountering. And that, no that change of management was a metamorphosis for my DJ career. Mm. Uh, and there's been various other things. So the, the, the two really do tie together. And I think you get, but it, you know, fundamentally, the thing it does best for me, this, this combination of jobs is 
I, I believe I fight harder for my clients than any lawyer ever would because I just take it very personally because I've experienced it all myself. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the best kind of way. Like you say, it was, um, if you've got clients that believe in you as a person as well and know that you're t- you're personally taking on this fight, you know, there's going to be a lot more uh, happy clients out there. I mean, how do you how do you balance the two? I you know because I'd assume that you know you're doing Monday to Friday and then you're like gigging at the weekend. Is that kind of how your schedule falls down? Like, yeah, I mean, I work I work a couple of days a week from my house actually in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my bit of working from home. That's lawyer work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my more mature take on the Balearics. It's actually in Mallorca, <laughs> um, which is like the the Balearics for slightly more senior people like me. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I mean, I work, and then I work from the office probably three days, three days a week in tile yard. Mm. Um, the, the, the legal aspects of what I do takes more time, mm. um, because it's very 24 seven, you know, you want, I think the best managers are 24 operate on a 24 seven basis. They might, their nearest and dearest might not be happy that they are constantly on call, but that's just the reality of doing the what I do as a lawyer properly and it's the reality of management and there's a lot of um common ground between management and and being a a music lawyer yeah yeah and you know have there been any moments where the two worlds have really kind of collided really clashed I'd imagine that you know have there been any moments where people have walked in they've seen your name on a card or something and then they're like oh oh no it's it's Judge Jules well, I had I had no. Do you know what? I had a well, the, the, a couple of anecdotes. I had a I had a client. I had a call today, in fact, with a um, a kid who's doing really, really well, making really great records. I really want to represent him because I love his music. Um, I, I can't mention his name, but he um, <laughs> doing brilliantly, getting played on Radio One, loads, getting on all Spotify playlists, mm-hmm. getting starting to get good gigs at things like the Warehouse Project, and he'd been recommended. I'd been recommended to him by his manager, and his manager didn't tell him who I was in my DJ capacity at all. So I was throwing in like stories like I've done 5,000 gigs, for example. He obviously thought I was a, like a bot, you know, a liar. Um, and and it was only when we got about, it was a half hour call, we got about 20 minutes in when he said, well, what's your DJ name? And he was like, um, it, it, it was a funny one when he, when he discovered <laughs> mildly. Um, but then, then I had another one. I suppose I can probably mention this. I don't like to mention too many names because mm. that's not what lawyers do. But basically, I represent Tool Room Records, and mm-hmm. I also rep- represent Dave Spoon, um, it, who's a you know very credible um, artist. Mm-hmm. And Dave Spoon did a remix of my own one of my old tracks called Outrageous, um, which has just been released on Tool Room. Mm-hmm. So I found myself negotiating on behalf of myself. And my client with uh, with Tool on the other side, they were fine about it. We we talked about it, and it was okay because I. But it, the, you know, for, I bore you. It wasn't it wasn't conflict, but it was just it just showed you what an incestuous yeah. world one lives in when you're when you're kind of doing that. And then then I did throughout the summer do I probably did forty or fifty festivals in the summer, and I reckon at least half of them one of my lawyer clients was on before me or after me on the bill. Um, at each of those those sort of 25 or thereabouts shows, wow. which is a bit strange because when you're guzzling Grey Goose, it's not <laughs> very, you know, whilst I'm not, I, I've never been the biggest kind of burn the candle at both ends, hardcore raver in town. Mm. Still, when, you know, when you're a little bit tipsy and you're sort of, uh, 
most of your interaction with those those clients is on quite a sober sober serious basis it, it's it's a bit odd yeah where's that line of professionalism it's like is it unprofessional to be this in this environment but professional to be like this in this environment it's yeah well i certainly don't have any gray goose on my desk in my in my in my uh, legal <laughs> practice that's for sure excellent cool well we've been talking for for nearly an hour now which is great um and we'll move on to um the the perfect playlist um the choices uh for that you've submitted for our perfect playlist on spotify and this is it's a playlist that every single guest who is featured on this um on this podcast has submitted five different tracks to based on five different themes um and yeah i'll tell you actually you're uh, you're going to be our 50th episode which is going to get released in January. So congratulations. Thank you. It's great oh, to celebrate with you. Um, <laughs> indeed. Um, so yeah, so uh, you can find this um, playlist on Spotify. It's over It's over like, 24 hours long. It's absolutely massive. Um, and there's all kinds of different um, tunes in there, you know, left field choices, weird things, great things, anthematic things, you know, it's all good. Um, and you've been fantastic and submitted your choices to me beforehand which is always helpful um and i'll just talk through what the theme was and what you've chosen for each one if you could just yeah. tell us why you, that came top of mind when this theme came into your inbox and you know just give us a bit of background on your connection with that track that'd be great sure. um so yeah we always start with a catalyst um a one track that got you kind of into dance music electronic music house music and you've chosen the night writers uh, let the music use you I just think it's got the most marvellous vocal. And and house music came along, when, when house came along, there weren't many good vocal records. It seems almost incredible to say it now when you can go on Spotify and there's just one house vocal, you know, fairly well-written house song after another. But when house first appeared in the late 80s, there were some really good groove records, but there was nothing with a decent vocal. And and even more so nothing with a truly spiritual almost gospel like vocal mm -hmm. and this this was the first great vocal house record i mean they've just created this uh app where you can basically take records that don't exist in a cappella form and stream them into their individual stems and i'm probably giving the game away here i've just got to do something with this oh vocal for all my entire life, I've wished there was an acapella of it because it's such a brilliant, meaningful vocal. It's not even a, it's it's not even a whole song. It's more of a ramble, but it's just so spiritual and meaningful. Yeah, it's fantastic, and it kind of it it's got that escalation through the track as well, which is uh, yeah, it's making my hair stand up just talking about it. It's great. Um, okay, so second choice is um, the floor filler. What is a floor filler for you? And you've chosen Seven Days and One Week by BBE. I mean, there's a lot of different definitions of a floor filler for me. I mean, it's a floor filler for me because I I've been doing it a long time, and I've got certain key memories. I, I remember I remember playing this, but there were only very few records that you can specifically remember playing like 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one of them. I remember playing at, at Cream and Amnesia and it's got these huge stabs. And of course, Amnesia has got those famous um, cannons of CO2 and, and, and hearing the stabs and the cannons going. And you, you mentioned how the previous my previous choice was a real builder. I just think this builds incredibly. And it's also a track that sort of sits out outside of being genre specific. It's mm -hmm. kind of trance. It's, it's that kind of German sound from the mid 
mid nineties that um, came out of clubs like Trezor and Averks in yeah. in Berlin. Um, the latter of which I played a few times in the in the mid nineties. Impossible to categorise and just energy aplenty. Yeah, absolute energy. Um, I'd love to hear about you playing in um, in that German club. Well, it was um, it was the, the Berlin Wall came down in about 1990, mm. uh, I think, and various clubs sort of were, if you like, sim- symbolic of the reunification of Berlin. And Averk, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, had been on the on the East German side. So it had not been accessible in a part of East Germany, not accessible to uh, of East Berlin, rather mm-hmm. not accessible to, to West Berliners. And it, it was in this disused electricity works sort of power station, which was fully tiled floor to massively high ceiling with kind of old school kind of 1950s white tiles. Um, and it was one of the formative, uh, one of one of the formative Berlin clubs that I was lucky enough to play in a few times. Mm, uh, it sounds incredible. Um, cool. All right, let's go uh, playlist again. It's um, the Sunsetter, uh, a track to, you know, soundtrack a perfect sunset. You have chosen the Canny remix of Electribe One Hundred One, uh, talking with myself. What is it about that one, and why have you chosen that particular remix of it? To me, the metaphor of a sunset is uh is mambo in ibiza mm-hmm. um although the cafe although when we think kind of chill out music the kind of i don't know the branding metaphor is perhaps cafe Omar. to me the the image that i hold dearest is watching the sun go down with a nice drink in the vodka limon in hand as the dj plays that that special the sun finally has gone down you know where you just look out to the mediterranean sea and you finally see that last glimmer of orange stroke mm-hmm. red disappear beyond the vanishing point. And the DJs at Mambo have always been very particular about what records to play at such a significant time. I mean, people are cheering and clapping, which I always find quite a strange irony. You know, God, uh, God stroke nature created the sunset. It's not, yeah, people clap as if it's been a live performance. Um <laughs> And I've all, I always thought that's the greatest record I've ever heard at Cafe Mambo at that moment. And I've heard it a few times played at that moment. And mm. um, why the Canny Meat remix? Well, originally it was a sort of, that was actually a very, it was a house record from the late 80s, but it was a quite a slow, slightly slower than normal BPM house record, and which is a very good track in its own right. But mm. that has just got amazing vocals from Billy Ray Martin, incredible uh, minor key chords haunting haunting to the nth degree and just the perfect sunset record yeah yeah and you don't you know you don't get all of those elements mixed together in you know a dance music track um very often it's yeah it's really super special um okay a tearjerker um you know what track house music or otherwise fills you with emotion every time you hear it and you've chosen again in that kind of like um a gospel kind of sense you've chosen uh promised land by joe smooth yeah um i mean i think as a song um i grew up loving paul weller um i've, I've always thought paul weller is one of the uh the, the greatest songwriters of his generation mm-hmm. um he was actually a parent at my kid's school he wasn't necessarily the most convivial parent <laughs> but that's a different story um but the fact that Paul Weller, one of the greatest songwriters of his generation, chose to do a cover version mm. of Promised Land is the ultimate nod to that as a dance record. Um, he did it. It's just got everything. I mean, 
inc- it, you could listen to it a million times and never get never get tired of it because it's 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 emotional yet it's sincere the lyrics are great the the sentiment is commendable and it's got the right amount of space in the groove because i think in art uh, sometimes it's art is as much about what you leave out as what you put in mm-hmm. and it's got such all the elements are right but it's got enough space to breathe as well i mean it's i'm sure i'd be surprised if i am the first person at this portion of your podcast to have included that in the playlist i tell you what i was trying to think off the top of my head um if it has been included before and i'm not i'm not sure it has usually i'll try and tell people if it's been if it's been chucked in there before but i don't think it's in there i hope not anyway i'll, I'll let you know if it is but it's, it's it is a fantastic fantastic tune even from the beginning just the opening couple of beats i think it's one of those rare tunes that you could play and the crowd will know what track it is just from the beats those rolling intro. Toms. yeah those toms, yeah yeah uh okay so a last tune um the crowd are asking for one more and you've chosen the uh rob seal mix of um power of love by frankie goes to hollywood yeah i am um, i i can't say the power of love in its original form was something that i necessarily particularly liked hmm. um It just, I know, I mean, that probably sounds sacrilegious because to many people it's considered one of the greatest love songs ever. (laughs) But it was just a bit too, the original was just a bit too pious for my taste. Mm -hmm. But you put a a dance beat behind it. I don't know if the Rob Sell mix ever came out, um, but it was very big in in its time, whether it was ever cleared, because if I was Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who famously sort of separated from one another quite acrimoniously and probably couldn't have agreed on, anything let alone whether to clear the rob Searle remix in the late 90s it's on spotify um, it's on spotify i have checked so yeah, we're all good. Oh, good. well it obviously <laughs> did obviously did uh, i don't want to draw any sort of adverse attention to it if it's not there for the right <laughs> reasons but anyway um but it was just a it, it it actually turned me on to the original record that you know many people might say is fantastic but i just couldn't get with the original sometimes sometimes things can be too sincere and too pious mm. um and, and maybe a little bit too clean, but, but the Rob Sell remix dirtied it up, but maintained and, and and actually gave the lyrics and the melody a new lease of life in terms of sincerity, as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's always a moment when you know, be on a dance floor and he play that track. It was always like lots of people hugging each other, and you know that whole kind of sense of community that it would bring from music is fantastic. Absolutely. Cool. And okay, so we've done the last tune. Um, so now it's time for the final question, um, which is one we always ask our guests. Um, obviously, you are the you are participating in the House Culture podcast. We are House Culture. Um, you you know you've you've given so much of your um, life and feeling and thought and career to this scene. When you look at it as a kind of a huge club culture entity. You know, how do you kind of square it with yourself? What has it brought you in your life and what what do you see the future holding for you? Well, I think on a very basic level, um, the greatest gift I've been given and I, and I, is, is making a full-time career out of music because so few people get that privilege. Um, there are millions probably, um, if not globally, tens of millions of people who do it on a hobbyist basis, probably, probably still millions of people who do it on a, on a semi-professional basis, but very, very few people 
who make a lifelong career out of music, especially out of dance music. And so, and part of that, I suspect in my case, probably, you know, you can't fake it. You can't fake the love. You can't fake the passion. Mm -hmm. But I, I just, that for me, to have done what, to have made a living and a decent living out of what I is my enduring passion makes me one of the luckiest guys on earth. Uh, and I, and I, do you know what? I had a conversation with um, Dan eats everything uh, recently who said exactly the same thing. There's not a day I don't wake up reminding myself how very lucky I am to be in that tiny percentage of people who've made a full-time career out of this. Mm. Well, I mean, that's a fantastic, final thought to to end on you know it's it's very lucky to, that you've uh, got to where you've gotten to and you know thank you for taking part in our podcast today matt it's been a pleasure thank you so much i'll wait to listen when i'm in the car house culture i hope you enjoyed that one it was pretty special for me as i have some amazing memories from the gatecrusher dance floor in sheffield and once orchestrated by Judge Jules himself. So it was a pleasure to sit down and chat to him. I want to thank him for taking the time out to chat to us as well. Also, who knew his uncle was Rick Stein? Bonus points for you if you knew that pub quiz of a question. And if you want to score some more points with us, make sure you follow the House Culture Perfect playlist on Spotify. Just fire up your Spotify player, search for House Culture Perfect playlist, stick it on shuffle and listen to the stellar selections from all of our previous interviewees. You'll of course find Jules's submissions in there as well and I must mention that the night writers that the music use you had already been placed in there by Danny Rampling and Smoking Joe and it was Shades of Rhythm who had chosen Joe Smooth's Promised Land before. So, as you can tell, this playlist is a huge warehouse of fan favourites that sit alongside some of the more obscure choices, so get it blasting out of your speakers. Once you have that as your soundtrack, please help to support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting or sharing. Your efforts honestly make a huge difference, as Spotify tells me that this show is in the top 5% of most shared shows in the world on their platform. So you guys spreading the word really does help keep this thing alive. You can also get in touch with us by using our Instagram page at HouseCultureNet. And if you have something nice to say, we'll definitely give you a shout out on a future episode. This time around, I have to say a big hello to Paul Linney, who's a previous guest of this show. And he got in touch to tell us that when he heard what Jody Harsh had to say about DJs that plan their sets in our last episode, he nearly crashed his van. So if you want to hear what might cause such vehicular mayhem, make sure to give that episode a listen. As always, you can come and bathe in the sumptuous world of house culture over on Instagram at housecultureNet. And if you want to chat to me directly, you can get in touch with me on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Rave safe and see you next time. House Culture. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 